to the Mayfair Hotel and this very special BAFTA screening of Blinded by the Light. I'm Jason Solomon. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I can't remember having as much fun legally in the cinema as when I saw Blinded by the Light. I think it's going to be a big British summer hit. I really do. And I think uh, that the, the feeling in the room, I think you've all enjoyed it. So uh, what we're going to do tonight is have a Q&A with the writer, director, producer of this, the one-woman film industry that is Garinda Chada. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to hog Gorinda for a few questions before we uh, throw the floor open uh, to, to you guys. How did, uh, because we, we, this is based on a book by, by Safraz yes. Mansour, so how did the project come to you and how did you turn it from a book? which is very different to what we see on the screen. How did you explode it into this lively, almost musical film? So, um, so when I was at school, I used to work at Harrods in the uh, record department on a Saturday. And I was very much into soul music. Yeah. I used to love all those, um, you know, Rock the Boat rock, and Tavares and all that. And... Um, one day, this guy, in the English guy with long hair and a beard uh, at Harrod said to me, have you heard of Bruce Springsteen? And I said, yes, but I'm not a rocker. And uh, he said, oh, I think you should listen to him. And he pulled out this album. It was Born to Run. It was a big album. Opened it up. And I was amazed because there was a, a, a white dude and a black dude kind of being very pally and intimate with each other. And that was a very rare... Sight. This is uh, Bruce and his and one Bruce of these and Clarence, Clarence Clemens, yeah. And the only other time I'd ever seen a band with black people and white people was Casey and the Sunshine Band. <laughs> so I was like, oh, so that's what got me. I thought, oh, this is different. Remember, this is before two tone and all that whole sort of rock against racism stuff. So I, I you know, that spoke to me. And then I took the album home and listened to the um, lyrics. And, uh, and the saxophone was the sole element that drew me in. And I was like, wow, this, this guy is writing about people like my parents, actually. Um, people who are struggling to get by, people who, you know, are on the edges of society. You would be living in Southall at the time. Uh, this, at this point, I was, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so then, a few years later, I went to see Bruce live in Wembley, 1984. Bizarrely, it was with Paul Whitehouse. Uh, well, you were with Paul Whitehouse. I was with Paul but Whitehouse. He wasn't on the bill. <laughs> he, was on, he wasn't even famous. <laughs> Nobody knew who he was. It was me, Dave Cummings, and Paul Whitehouse. And we stood on our chairs, and we were like, yeah, Bruce. And if anyone has ever seen him live, that is and will be the best concert you've ever been to. And it had such an effect on me, and I just, that was it. I just poured over the lyrics of the river. I just loved the storytelling. And I thought he was very cinematic in his storytelling. And of course, at that point, I had no idea I was ever going to be a film director. Um, and then I read an article in a newspaper with a very dodgy looking Pakistani bloke with an afro. And it was him standing here. And he'd taken a picture of Bruce back there, who was like, 
like this, <laughs> and like just got caught in the light of his camera. And it was a whole article by uh, Safraz Manzur. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, there's another Asian person who likes Bruce Springsteen. So I thought, I, honestly, I was the only one. Yeah. And that's how we connected. And then we became friends for our love of Bruce. Uh, we would spend time talking about the ghost of Tom Joad and which track we thought was the better one and things like that. Um, he was a big super fan. I loved him, but I also then loved the specials and you know the jam and the clash and all that. So he said to me he was going to write um, a memoir. And by then, uh, Bend It Like Beckham had been uh, a big hit. And when he was writing, he, in his heart, he felt that he hoped there was, that I would read it and like it, and maybe there was something I could do. Um, and then when I read the galleys, I said, this is a great uh, memoir, but you've taken all the drama out because you're protecting your family. And I understood that totally, because I do the same, yeah. you know, with everything I do. Um, and I said, so we can jump off from here, but we, there's nothing we can do without Bruce. We need to have Bruce on board. Um, and then we were like, okay, well, we're not really sure how that's gonna happen. Um, and then um, in 2010, uh, Bruce Springsteen was coming to London for The Promise, the premiere of The Promise at the BFI. The BFI, the red carpet they had there. Yeah. Red carpet. Uh, it came along the river and then into the BFI, into NFT One. <laughs> Um, and I was invited, few, uh, and I ditched my husband and took Safraz as my plus one, <laughs> as he says very wisely. Uh, and what happened was unbelievable on many levels, no, not just in terms of being a fan of Springsteen, but also filmmaking, you know. Um, he walked in, and we were both standing on either side of the red carpet with flip cameras. Um, ready to sort of film him walking past us and like going like this, <laughs> like proper fans. And as he came in, he caught Safraz's eye. And of course, he recognized Safraz not only from the hundred and so concerts he'd been to, <laughs> but also from hanging around hotels all day and standing by cars <laughs> trying to take dodgy pictures with him. So he walked over to Safraz and, and said, Hey man, I read your book. It's really beautiful. And Safra's like, oh my God. And he had a meltdown. And Bruce was like, really cool, like this. And he's going, you read it? How did you read it? And I was going, be cool, be cool. <laughs> and Bruce is going, oh yeah, people send me stuff. Yeah, I read it, you know. And then I was thinking, this is it. I've got 30 seconds to do a movie deal right now with Bruce Springsteen because <laughs> people were trying to push him along, right? You know, those situations. So I was like, okay, be professional, be cool, and do a deal, you know? <laughs> so meanwhile, Safras is like going loopy over here. So, by the way, we filmed this on our flip camera, but we got beautiful footage of Bruce's chest because <laughs> the camera's down here while we're going like that. <laughs> So we can't even use the footage. <laughs> and like, so, so Safras is there, Bruce is there. I'm like, think, think, think. And I went, hi, I'm Corinda Chadda. <laughs> and I was going, be cool. Hi, mate, Brendan, I'm Beckham. I was like that. It was really not cool at all. <laughs> and I was just so overcome. And, but I did get it out. I said, I made this film. Brendan, like Beckham, he went, I heard about that movie, he said. And I was like, oh my God, he heard about my movie. And then I was like, 
I'm so glad you like the book. We really want to turn it into a movie, but we can't do it without your support. Please really support us, you know, <laughs> these crazy people here. And Safraz and I both looked at him, and then he looked at us and went, sounds good, talk to John. And behind him was John Landau, Tracy Nurse, and Barbara Carr, his management team. And he sort of nodded, and he walked on. And I remember we were still trying to talk to him as he walked on. I remember shouting, so glad you're here in London, or something. So naff, um, which is on camera. Um, and then um, John Landau said, what are you guys talking about? What are you doing? What? What's going on? And then we explained, and then the next day, John was found, we, there was a picture of John Lando going into Claridge's Hotel with a copy of Sephiroth's book in his pocket. So we were like, oh, the messages got home. And then I kept in touch with uh, Tracy Nurse, uh, who's, who'd worked with Bruce for over 35 years at Sony. And I said, what, so what do we do now? And she said, well, he said it sounds good. So I said, yeah, but he just said that, you know. And she said, no, Bruce, if he says that, then he does think it's mm -hmm. good. And he, she said, you should uh, go make your movie. I mean, go and write the script, right? So I was like, just like that. And she said, yeah. So I went to the BFI, got a, got a grant from the BFI, and decided that what we had to do was write a script just for Bruce Springsteen. Nobody else didn't care about the BFI. And we were like, we've got to write a script that Bruce is going to like. Well, Tracy is here tonight, so... And Tracy is here tonight. Because he worked. There she like, is, What have there. I got myself mixed up in? I don't know what. <laughs> uh, Tracy, is that... Up there. There she goes. Oh, yeah, you're, you're up there. Sorry, down. that's there Danny. I couldn't see. There's Tracy. <laughs> she can she worked with Bruce for 35 all, years. All she's, true. she's your chest is in that video as well. <laughs> like, not your face, your chest. <laughs> what? So when you went to write the script, you thought, I'm going to write this for Bruce. You, you obviously knew you needed his permission because you wanted to put the songs yes. in. Because the songs yes. aren't in the book in the way that they, they sort of mark the emotional development, like in a musical. They tell the story yeah. partly in here. And I want to know how you came up with the idea to, to put the songs on the screen lyrically, to put the emotions up there, to use partly Bruce's own songs, to partly then yeah. get other people to sing them. Because it's, it's not like... It's not like other musicals, Corinda. It's no, not, it's, it's a, not, it's it's a, a quasi-musical. Quasi I don't know what, what masala of musical it is. It's, a, it's its own British musical. Uh, it's, that's what I wanted to do, something different. Um, so with the script, so Safraz, uh, being a journalist, and it, it, it being his story, he said, I'd love to, can I have a go? Can I write it? So it's that thing where I'm so, so many people here, it's like, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I was like, he's not going to be able to do it. He's a scriptwriter. He's a journalist. So I sat him down and I gave him a tutorial in my living room on Robert McKee's three-act structure. And I broke down Bendit Light Beckham in terms of the inciting incident and the three acts and literally went through the whole thing. You could sell that on Facebook. You make a fortune. I should have done <laughs> And then he kind of was like, OK. And... What happened was he, he did have a go, and it was his story, so I felt it was important to let him write it, to have a go, so he got it out of his system. Because otherwise I felt that if I'd have just taken it over, he might have always felt 
some kind of resentment about not being able to have a go. And I didn't really want that. And I'd been in a position like this before, actually, uh, on another project, uh, which has never saw the light of day and still hasn't seen the light of day because that stupid blooming author um, who took the script away from us and couldn't do it, and then it never happened. But that's another story. Another story. Um, <laughs> so um, with Safraz, he had a go. And he could, you know, he did, he did, you know, he did, he had, did some good dialogue, you know, and he had good references. Um, but then um, the BFI said, right now, we need to turn it into a screenplay. So then that's when I took over with Paul. But you always write your screenplay. You and Paul, your your partner, always yes. write the screenplay. Yes. Really. You were never. It's, it's never going to get to screen without that. No, uh, exactly. Touch. But it's his story. Yeah. So I felt like he needed to have his say. And also, he's a journalist, you know, so he's pushy. So, <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, go on, do it, mate, do it. But it was good because he did it, and he realised how hard it is mm. actually um, to get a, a, a structure, you know, for a proper screenplay. Structure is not just about being able to write; it's it's marrying all these different elements. And and what was great was once I Paul and I took over, he was always a, a, a very good reliable resource for us and anybody who's a writer knows how much you need that that person you know so in any situation you know you, you when i needed for example i took i got i'm the one i got all the lyrics and i said i need the script to it's a film about words we've got javid's story but to bring bruce in I didn't want to make a jukebox musical. I really needed to make the connection of the words because it was a film about words and how words can touch you and mean you. And I had to find a cinematic uh, way of telling that story uh, and, and that device. And so I sat there, you know, I went onto lyrics.com or whatever, and I got all the lyrics out of songs from 1987. Um, that I related to and I thought could work. And then I poured over the lyrics and then I took sections of the lyrics. And in the actual screenplay, you'll see, you know, there's dialogue and then I wrote Springsteen. <laughs> and then Springsteen's words come in and they're lyrics, but I've treated them like dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to make his words very much the fabric of the script and the film. And there were times I'd be in a situation where I really needed a song, but I couldn't think of the right song or the lyrics. And I would call Safraz, and he'd invariably be on the top of the number 19 bus or something, going to Finsbury Park. And, and I'd say, look, this is the scenario. What song do you think? What lyric? And he'd say, give me half an hour. And then I'd put the phone down, and like three minutes later, he'd go back and go, well, how about da 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 da, you know? And, and I'd say, that's no good. I've been there. That one doesn't work. Oh, that might be good. And so it was that sort of geeky detail that we went When did you we get the, the light bulb moment to sort of say, well, I'm going to write it on the walls. I'm going to put them on the garages. I'm going um, to cover the suburbs in, these, in this, in this, in this blue-collar poetry. Um, quite early on for me, because that because then you know there's a point where I become a write. I'm a writer, and then I write, and then then then, then there's a bit where I start doing passes as a director. 
So I and it will and it merges, obviously. But I knew that that scene, the dancing in the dark and promised land, that I knew that the film was going to fall or stand by that moment. And that had to feel like someone's eureka moment. And it didn't and it wasn't easy. You know, it took ages to perfect. And I don't think I got it right until the edit room, to be honest with you. It was in the script. And I did work with, you know, my wonderful team at Molinaire and doing various versions of the words and then in the end I said look this is looking like too much like subtitles and we don't want to subtitle it the words have to be emotional in themselves they have to be a character in themselves because they're they're pushing him and it was almost there was one version you'll be happy to hear this actually there was one version where in L in Luton in the housing estate there was going to be a silhouetted fiddler on the roof you know type person like a bruce type person up there um just watching over everything and then i was like that is so naff and so i cut that out <laughs> that went but it was i was thinking fiddler on the roof you know and yeah, i was thinking I was different thinking, things i was because th there is a bit of that in there but there's a bit of mgm but there's a bit of jack demi there's a bit of mm. uh, obviously a bit of bollywood uh, as well but there's also and a john bit of hughes. More, john, john hughes john hughes it reminded me. i've never seen yes. an 80s film a British 80s film really nailed that British high school element before. That I was going for John Hughes. British John Hughes is definitely what I was going for, sort of 80s. But I, I because there's a lot of other music in it as well. Yeah, amazing, because there's how many Springsteen songs? There's 19. 19. So there's not 19, but there's also Aha, there's Level 42, yeah. there's Tiffany. Tiffany it's yes. not just, it takes a while Cutting before. Cutting Crew. Cutting Crew. So there's a lot of 80s <laughs> stuff in there. A lot of 80s. There's also. Um, Bhangra music, which was very important to me in 1987. So the sister's journey, you know, was um, important to me. And so I wanted to do the Bhangra daytimer because in 1987 that I first walked into Zenith, as it was called, in Leicester Square, that nightclub, and it was packed with 700 Asians and these Bhangra guys, you know, doing this at like three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And like, it had a massive impact on me, that music, because that, that whole music scene, the Bangladesh music scene, really made me feel confident in who I was as a British Asian. And that's when I went on and made my first film, I'm British But, which is about that Bangladesh music scene. So it was wonderful to be able to bring that back. Also, the music that the dad listens to, yeah. those are my dad's two favourite songs. Are they? And, what are they? Uh, from Biju Bhavra, the movie Biju Bhavra, and it's... Uh, so whenever my dad had about three or four shivers regals, you know, <laughs> he would burst into that song, which basically means, oh, you who look after the world, what have you done? My, all my veins are full of sadness and sorrow. <laughs> it's a real lament. You know? <laughs> sounds, sounds good. Yeah, um, but it, was, it suited the dad. And actually, a few weeks ago, my uncle... Uh, was over from Australia because my mum sadly died uh, last month. And um, but I had the picture of her before she died, so I was pleased about that. Did she that. get to see the movie? Uh, no, she didn't. But um, my uncle was here for the funeral, and we had a press screening. And I said, "Oh, you must come. You must come before you get back on the plane." So he was sitting in the front. There's all these journalists there at the Sarah Hotel. And then when those songs come on, he's like, "Oh, Gio!" <laughs> <laughs> I was, and I'm going, shoot! I was sitting in the same row as him. You were there, yeah. weren't you? Yes. 
He loved it though. I yeah. mean, absolutely, the, the, the joy on the face. And that, part of that, I think, is what chimes with this movie. You mentioned the personal aspects of it, but it's, I don't think there's an 80s British movie, maybe someone in the room can remind us, that, that as I said, in that period, but also seen through those eyes, through those, yeah. through those Asian, Anglo-Asian eyes, that experience has never really been put across, maybe on telly a bit, maybe East Disease, but that was a northern tale and that was about mixed marriage. This is entirely from this Pakistani point of view and I don't think that that experience has ever been put across to a wider audience. Well, you did in the 80s have My Beautiful Laundrette, obviously mm. Hanif's work, um, and Annie's disease. But those were stories from a mixed-race point of view. Mm. Those were authors, both Hanif and Ayub, who were mixed-race and much more sort of, um, with certainly in Ayub's case, sort of um, sympathetic to their English mothers than their Asian dads. And... Um, and so I, I, I had issues with those films from an uh, Asian point of view, because for me, they, they were, although great films, um, but they were made from the outside looking yeah. in to the Asianists, whereas my films are always from the inside looking out, which enables me to sort of jump around so much from humour to sadness to politics to whatever, like, because I find that, you know, my whole career what what other people have done and continue to do is box me into what I should be doing and what they think I'm going to do and what invariably happens is I just go no I'm not that I'm this and and therefore if I make a film that connects with people then suddenly people are like oh I was I'm really surprised I really related to that or you know I'm surprised I started crying or and that, ha that happened with Bender like Beckham a lot. People were like, uh, you know, I really liked it, even though I'm not Asian, sort of stuff. And so, um, you know, I think for me, though, when I look at these, a lot of these films, I think how English they are, yeah. they're very English. Um, and certainly in America, the few Sikhs um, screenings we've had, people have come away with the fact that they're very British as opposed to anything else. I mean, it's an entirely British experience. It, it, Luton looks... You, you shot in Luton, like, yes. absolutely. Yes. It's important to shoot it, yes. absolutely in Luton. Um, <laughs> 30 odd days. So it, it rained every day. <laughs> so, as far as I'm concerned, Ben Smither, the DP, miracle worker, you know, because it was grey and rainy every day. And your, I mean, your whole team, the production design, the details in the houses are fantastic. I don't know, it, it seems an exercise in memory as well, that having the, the door, that those plastic mats that people had. Yes. I always wonder what they were, what they for. Did they keep muddy feet off, really? But to see it dramatically repurposed to combat but what is everyday racism yes. that perhaps had never been shown before is an extraordinary moment. Well, I've always shied away from being very visceral about racism because again I didn't want to be defined by it you know and often people who tell our stories who are not from our backgrounds you know tend to tell our stories in the problematic and that we're we're just defined by that one problem at the time whether it's racism or terrorism or you know um, you know girls being subjugated by their dads or whatever it's like always problem problem and so uh, yeah uh, and that's one reason i didn't want to play into that you know um and that's one reason i liked four lions so much because it threw that right up and so i think um 
in this film, though, what happened was I, I had started working on the script and then I went off to make Viceroy's House. And then when I came back from Viceroy's House, I was like, OK, what am I going to do next? Um, and I was worried about Blinded by the Light because there are overlaps with Bender Light Beckham and I didn't want to repeat myself. Um, that's another reason I worked so hard on the musical sequences, so it felt like a different yeah. film. Um, but then um, Brexit happened and it was the vote and I was like as shocked as anyone else. And then suddenly all this xenophobia started happening around us. And I saw a story about a middle-aged guy getting on a bus and shouting abuse at an elderly black woman who'd worked in the NHS yes. her whole life. And I was like, I can't believe this is happening here in London, in my hometown. And, and it was shocking, actually. I was shocked and I was like, what can I do about this? I need, I, I need to do something about this and, 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 and create a story that dealt with the pain of racism and growing up with that in the 80s um, and show a way forward to say we, we, we don't want to go back there. And, and as much as anything for my kids, you know, and their friends and, and to hopefully empower people to say that's not the world we want, we choose a different world. And that's why I then picked up the script and said, OK, I'm going to do my Brexit pass. <laughs> and that's what I did. I picked, I did a couple of drafts then where I just really felt, um, you know, all the anger and frustration I felt of what was going on around me, I just put into these drafts. But what was amazing then is that Bruce came to my rescue because Bruce's words, you know, they are, they are perfect for the world today, you know, no one wins unless we all win, you know. And and so I started then pulling the words again and working out, you know, how to make a film that was resonant and relevant today that was set in 1987. In, in Luton, so in Luton. provincial Britain. And the fact that it, obviously at Sundance it was a big hit and had, it was bought uh, by Warner, so it's, it's being, yeah. big, it's going to looks like it's going to be a big success in America too. How have they well, reacted? Well, Charlottesville happened after we finished, right. um, you know, making the mo movie. After I finished shooting, Charlottesville happened. Then, of course, recent events in America, you know, have uh, you know made. Well, you it. said they see it as British, but how? But they've also well, found found their. Well, they own... say it's very relevant today, you know. Um, and I try not to get caught into into the Trump. Thing and but um, so I think that it for Bruce, you know, being a Democrat, I think it was a very smart move on his part to make this movie because, in a way, this is presenting that position, you know, in a very commercial sort of way across the states. I'm gonna just uh, open up the, the, the floor to you guys, but just before we do that, I just want to find out about your lead character who's yes. fabulous in yes. it, Javid, yes. Vivek. Vivek, yes. Uh, where did you find I've never seen him before. Where did you find him? I yeah. think he's terrific. He's got the, the innocence the, the, and then the, he's got the sort of strength in there. It's a tremendous performance, plus the yes. singing and the dancing uh, and the arguing yeah. with your parents, which is not easy to do because uh, you want to come across likeable like while you're still rebelling. Yes. He, so Vivek was still at college uh, then. And he'd had a small part in an ITV show called um, Next to Kin, where he was playing a terrorist, supposedly. Um, and I'd sort of seen him in that. And I, I, um, 
I mean, it wasn't enough for me to tell. And then there was a small pool, a very good pool of actors, and I narrowed it down to three. And um, and I just believed that he he would write poetry, you know. Um, the other guy I liked too, but I didn't I didn't think he would write poetry. I think if anyone said to him, "You can't do what you want," I thought they'd he'd take them up and put them up against the the wall. And um, so I cast him as Roops, <laughs> and then I cast Vivek as uh, as uh, Javed. But I'm very pleased. I find casting very hard to do, because especially with Asian kids, because they all look at me and go, "Oh, make me a star, make me a star," and and I find it very hard. But but I, with these, there was a third guy who was also very good. I was very pleased because he's in sex education, so he got a good break there. But. The thing with me and actors, I like, I really like working with young actors. Mm. Well, you're I, going to, I mean, start going back to Kira Knightley. Yeah. Linda was Aaron, uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson. And um, yeah, oh, who's the other guy? The I, girl? Had, I had to have a big fight Georgia. with Paramount Casting to cast Aaron, because uh, they wanted nice actor Alex Pettifor, but I really wanted Aaron, and I thought Aaron was the real, real deal, and he was only 16. But I, oh God, I saw something in him that was magical. And I saw that in Vivek. And I think part of that is the fact that I know that I have to make these inexperienced actors come over as consummate, experienced actors who can pull out a performance for the cinema screen, mm. you know. So in order for that, I, I need them to trust me and I need them to... Uh, not have any ego, actually. That's the thing for me. Because if an actor comes in and and shows any any of that, you know, I can sniff that out. And then I find it very hard to work with them. And that's actually how I do my casting. And so if I, if some, and that's why often if they if they've read the script and what they pull out from the script, it says a lot to me about who they are. And interestingly for Vivek. You know, when he read the script, he said his dad went through all this. Mm. So he was drawing on his dad's perform his dad's life. Well, it's a beautiful <laughs> performance that grows as well for a young actor to actually grow the yes. performance. Yes. Well, at the beginning, he wasn't... Obviously, he was new, and so I, I bought him all my experience and guided him, you know, very, very much. You know, I did... You know, there were times when he was tired and he... And he... And you knew he was tired, and, and he'd... Do the scene, and I go, no. And he go, what? I'm doing it. I said, no. You're thinking about lunch, aren't you? <laughs> you're thinking about that falafel you're going to have, aren't you? And he said, no. Yes, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, look, we'll just do it once more, and this time, blah, blah, blah. and then he'd do it, and then I go, what is that, Vivek? Come on, we all want lunch. Stop being all vacant in your eyes. And he go, I'm not being vacant. I said, you're being vacant and you're googly-eyed. And that's why I used to say, I said, you're googly-eyed. And then, of course, the vanity kicks in for actors. <laughs> and he was like, oh, God, I'm googly-eyed, I'm googly-eyed. I need to sort this out. So then it was all in the eyes, of course. Then he would, like, focus and he'd go for it. And I'd go, yes, yes. So it's part of it is how you communicate with them. Part of it is taking out that hierarchy of director, actor, and just being on the same level and, you know, saying, I can't go to lunch till you do this either. We're in it together, mate. Let's just get there. Before the first question for the floor, 
my last one is has Bruce Springsteen seen it yet? Mm -hmm. And what does he think? So, uh, so apart from those two sentences that I said, sounds good, I'm all good with this. He had no involvement in anything. Uh, except for one little thing that I'll, I might talk about later. But basically, when I finished the film, uh, the director's cut, uh, this, this time last year, I said, he needs to see the film because I'm not comfortable with putting it out there without him seeing what I've done. He might look at what I've done with kids running around Luton singing Born to Run and go, <laughs> What the fuck is this? <laughs> what, is she, what has she done to my anthem? You know, like honestly, I was like, I've done what I think is right. And I kind of made the movie, as I said, for him. So every decision I made, I made thinking what he would say. I took a risk of those gags against him, like the, the lyrics of Born to Run. The They're tramp, really crap. Tramp running. The tramp running. Actually, a tramp oh, yeah, that was, running. I wasn't proud of that, but we <laughs> I did thought that. It worked. I thought you got away with it. No one else could. Um, the uh, um, Billy Joel is that Billy Joel? Um, but the best one I, was I loved it, and I wanted to keep it. Was when Matt says to Javid, when he quotes the lyrics from Born to Run, and he says, "Did you write that? I told you lyrics were crap." I wanted to keep that because I don't you know. I just thought that was a good thing. To, because everyone's going Bruce, 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 and it just subverted mm. it. And then, anyway, I went to New York, and um, he was on Broadway, and so it was a Sunday afternoon, and we sat in a room, him and Tracy and uh, Barbara Carr and John Landau, and um, he came in, and I was like, oh, hi, oh. Um, it's my movie, it's off the Abbey, it doesn't look great, it doesn't sound great, really sorry. Um, did my apologies like all directors do. Um, and then he started watching the movie and I sort of sat sort of behind him. And um, he watched it very, very intensely. And then he smiled at a few things. He did laugh at that, your lyrics are crap line. He did laugh at that. And then he just, he just really took it all in. And then um, at the end though, the film finished and there was silence. And I was like, shit, this hasn't gone the way I wanted it to go. And that was because none of the managers wanted to say anything until he spoke, right? So, um, and even Tracy was on the line there because she'd been working with me on it. Did she pass out? <laughs> anyway, I had to go down the front to get my bloody tape out of the machine and disappear off quickly. So I went down, I put the lights on, and as I went over, he got up and he walked over to me and he gave me a big kiss here. And then he put his arms around me and he said, wow, thank you for looking after me so beautifully. I'm blown away. He said, don't change a thing. <laughs> amazing. And it was, it was amazing. And then, and then for an hour we sat down and he, and he went through all the things that he loved about my film. And I was like, oh my God. So it really is about seize the day. Yeah. That moment on that red carpet, seize the day. But also I suppose it's a real tribute to his writing that, you, that totally. it can mean so much 
when he wrote it for, for one audience, that it means so much to someone like that. It's yes. tremendously inspiring. Yes. I mean, you all know, I mean, who Bruce fans, he doesn't like to be seen as a rock star or a rock god or a rock, rock legend. In fact, whenever he has gigs anywhere, Tracy's job is to go there first and take out anything that says, the boss, we love you, and all that, because he doesn't like any of that adulation. And so I think what he liked about the film was that it was about him, but it wasn't about him. And I think he, what he really responded to was the fact that, that even though he wrote these songs in the 70s uh, and early 80s, we had made them relevant to today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is time to open up the floor to the questions of Bruce Springsteen fans, film fans. There's one right on the corner, which is perfect there. Yeah, I am a Bruce Springsteen fan. Safra has told me at, at the Hay Festival to come and see this, so I'm very pleased for that. Um, and I noticed his cameo as well in the in the centre of Luton, which is really nice. Yes. I wondered how many people Did you, you see my cameo, though? I didn't... Where were you? I had the big Whitney Houston wig oh, on. Oh, great. Yeah. In Brilliant. Athena. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, uh, I just wondered how many of the quite young cast you managed to convert to the waves of the boss by well, the, the end. The tragedy is that none of them have heard of Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> when, we were, when I auditioned them, they'd never heard any of his songs. And so one of the things I did during auditions with all the guys, uh, and Nell, actually, I did not, you know, regular audition scenes, and then I got my speaker out and I put it on the table and I played Born to Run really loudly. And I said, so what are you going to do to this? What would your character do to this? And Vivette would talk about it. He said he was shitting it because he didn't know anything, didn't know the words, didn't know nothing. But actually what he did was he actually stood there and closed his eyes and like really felt the music <laughs> and it totally worked. But no, they, 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 they have now, they tell me that they listen to Bruce, but I know that Aaron listens to NWA and all that rap stuff uh, because it, um, when, we've, when we've been on planes, I've been trying to airdrop songs to them and they're like, will you stop doing that, Corinda? I'm sure a new generation will, though. Young people yes, are going to see this. I movie, think right? young yeah. people, you know, he has a lot of fans around the world, but I think that I'm excited, you know, the film's going to open in India um, in a few weeks. You know, and that, that's a whole new audience that's going to see him in a different way. And um, I think that um, I would never have imagined that when this movie came out, that Bruce was going to be number one in 14 countries with a new album. You know, that's incredible. That's five decades. Um, so he's as relevant now as he as he has ever been. And. They're, just because we're on a Bruce, there is a soundtrack album. Yes, out. soundtrack yes. on the ninth, same day as the film opens. With a new Bruce Springsteen track, which you heard tonight, um, "Stand by You." And all the Indian tracks. And, the Indian. and my dad's tracks. <laughs> uh, question right at the back. There are two questions right at the back. Well, the, the 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 person I can't see if it's a lady or a man. A lady. lady. I think it's a lady right at the back. And oh, a man. Sorry. Gentleman first, and then then lady. Like you, Gurinder, I grew up in Nairobi. How much has your East African upbringing affected your art? Sadly, I was a baby, so I don't have any memories of Nairobi as such. But my dad was born there, mum and dad, and they loved it. And they craved Africa in all kinds of ways. Um, I've represented the East African Sikhs, because it's a different way of t tying a turban um, in, in movies. And, um, 
And really, the, the main thing is, is that East African uh, Indians are very different to Indian Indians. You know, that's the main thing. So culturally, um, we are a lot more uh, open to integration because it's already been done before. We have a kind of African sensibility, which makes us, you know, very gregarious and life-affirming and joyous, actually. I think that comes from being East African. And I think that, um, you know, my, I'll tell you this story of my mum and dad. So I grew up, you know, in a shop. And uh, at this point, my mum and dad had a shop in Streatham. And at lunch times, sometimes they used to close the shop and they used to go and get um, fish and chips uh, for lunch. And then they'd go up on top of Streatham Hill, a part of Streatham, and not Streatham Hill, somewhere in Streatham. And they'd sit at the top of this hill and eat their fish and chips and look down. And all the way down the hill were allotments. And it reminded them of Africa in Streatham. And they, they used to do that at lunch times, which I thought was really sweet but in them i would say that being twice migrants as they're called you know as we're called i think it's more that um that are we're just much more open i would say than indians from india who are more inward looking and i find when i go to india that i find people very parochial <clears throat> much in the same way as i do when, when we go when i go to the states you know, people are very inward-looking, very parochial, and everything's very much about their perspective. Thank you. And there's the, the lady in the back row, yeah. Um, hi, Gorinda. Hi. <laughs> um, I'd like to say that one of my absolute favourite sequences from just watching the film is um, the one... Is it Born to Run? Sorry, I'm not familiar with Springsteen's music. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> I'm young, I'm young, let me off. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so you mean when they're running through the streets? When they're running through Luton. Yeah, um, that's Born to Run. Yes. That's Bruce's <laughs> biggest song ever. <laughs> he finishes every concert with that song. <laughs> you can hear it live. <laughs> um, yeah, so doing something like that, I feel, um, is very easy to kind of overdo and make it a little bit cheesy, you know, kind of running through the streets singing a song. But um, the whole of... as you know, as well as the whole of the film, that sequence came across really heartwarming and dynamic and fluid and just really warm. Um, so I was wondering, how did you make sure that that feeling came across when you were actively directing it and filming it? Well, I think this cheese question is an interesting one because it's very um, personal, you know. Um, something that's really cheesy to some people is like really beautiful to others, you know. And <clears throat> I think that finding that balance is hard. Um, and so you're never going to please everybody. So you just have to do what's right for you. And sometimes, you know, I get frustrated with people who write about my work because they they're looking at it from their perspective. And I'm like, you can, but you have to firstly contextualize it from my experience. You have to understand why I make the choices I do as an Asian woman, not just you coming to it thinking, oh, it's yours to just write about. 
Of course it's yours to write about, but you have to be informed as to why. And The Guardian's particularly bad at this because The Guardian always feels like, you know, they, they, they can do whatever they want, say whatever they want when it comes to race. And they actually problematise it a lot and they actually often are quite offensive to people like me because they don't take on board our position of why we make decisions. And I'm absolutely, totally in agreement with anybody who wants to criticise what I do. I have no problem. I, in fact, like reading bad reviews um, because I'm a journalist. I started off as a journalist, right? And so you're, once you're a journalist, you're always a journalist. So I'm always interested to hear these other opinions. And often I'll go, actually, I think they've got a point. Maybe, you know, whereas my husband's like, fucking jerk, what the hell does he know? And all that. And I'm like, no, you've got to look beyond that. Look at the note, you know. So it's quite interesting to me. But I find that position of partiality, like I'm not allowed to have my position often, or it's not valued, my position, in the same way as a given for other directors. So that cheese factor for me, you know, it's, it's a very tricky thing to make a film for a global audience when you're talking about race and you're talking about Bruce Springsteen and you're trying to make a film that's going to have an impact on the world politically um, and trying to make something entertaining at the same time. And there's all kinds of nuances involved in that, you know. It's the same with Bender Light Beckham. There's choices that I make and those are based on me. That's who I am, that's what I think, you know. Um, that's my view of the world. And sometimes it is cheesy. And some people will find that sequence very cheesy, you know. Um, and there was a version, I have to say, which ended with um, the couple kissing on top of that hill with the sun behind it. And I'm like, that's too cheesy. <laughs> That's even cheesy for me. And so we went back to how it was originally scripted, which was at the mosque, um, with you know the euphoria of Born to Run, and then suddenly you're at the mosque and there's a pig's head um, hanging from it, which actually happened in Luton. And so you take the edge off it. And that's a decision. The other decision was, um, um, I wasn't in the room, but I'm sure it was silent in here when the scene played, which, is, which happens in England. Uh, which is the direct opposite of what happens in America in that scene, and that's in the passport uh, control. Um, now, for some people, that's going to be way too cheesy, right? And I actually, with my British hat on, took that scene out, because I said no one is ever going to believe that that actually happened in real life. But that actually happened to Safraz when he went to New York uh, in the early 90s, <laughs> Uh, and it was just after 9-11, actually, 92. He went and he was going to a concert and the passport guy said, I can't think of a better reason to visit the United States than to see the boss. And so that's why we put the scene in. But today, you're like, no one's going to believe that. No one's going to. So I'm like, we've got to take it out. Everyone's going to think it's too cheesy. And then at the last minute, I put it back in because I thought, it did happen. I'm going to put it back in. So I know there'll be people who write about that and go, She's off a rocker, it's too cheesy. But on the other hand, in America, when that scene plays, you, and it happened at Sundance, 
people are really uncomfortable because they're going with the movie at that point because it's all about Britain, right, and everything in Britain being a bit nasty. And then they get to the passport guy and then they're all, like, shifting because they think he's going to get thrown out of the country. Um, and then when the guy says, I can't think of a better visit, reason to visit the United States, like the roof goes up from every screening and people are cheering and like go, woo! And it's so interesting because there's silence in Britain. <laughs> and it's like the opposite there. But I think that's because there's such a release. People don't get to see these kind of stories in America told with such joy. And, you know, because it is problem, 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 you know, or and it's... Not, it's not angry. And it's not angry, You have yeah. right to be angry, but yes. it's overcome. I also think that with those questions, I think that you, you've earned the right to do a tramp joke, to do that joke, because there's, you're, there's such poise and craft in this movie. I know yeah. you, you say it's like Beckham, but you're a far different yes. director to the one that directed yes, Beckham definitely. a long time ago. You definitely. Yeah, I do craft. think it, as a director, it's my best movie in terms of the crafting of it and um and so yeah i've always been concerned about that because as i said i was a journalist and i learned on the job i never went to film school so um but yeah thank uh, you and gentlemen, uh, we, she's got to go to america uh, <laughs> uh on friday to to premiere it right we're going to premiere in new jersey yeah. yes <laughs> and and for the Bruce fans, the after party's in the Stone Pony. Is it? Fantastic. And you're yeah. doing it in Asbury Park? We're yeah. doing I insisted. I said, I don't want to do it in New York and I don't want to do it in LA. I want to go back to New Jersey. So the waitress you saw in there, she's coming. Waitress is coming. <laughs> and all the, all, New, come. all the New Jersey people. The flight. Um, we do have to get the room back as well. So um, you can try and tackle her over there. She's going to come. Cool, just way. do one more. Oh, one more. We're going to have one more question. Oh, wait, just have a microphone when you say that. It's a good thing to say. <laughs> uh, I absolutely loved the film. Was I supposed to cry? Because I did. <laughs> There's uh, part yeah. of it, and a lot of it with me is, you remember I spoke to you at Women of Film, I spoke to you at Women of Film on television about the, um, how you coped with the stress of being a director. Oh, yes. That, yeah, you remember. Yes, yeah. and well, I said she's not in I just wanted to tell you that the film, by chance, that I've done has this theme... And it's oh. about me going to drama school. Oh. <laughs> and everyone's going to laugh when my mother said, no, you can't go to drama school. They're all tarts. Actresses are all tarts. <laughs> so that was, I really identified with the film, mm. you know, completely. I thought it was wonderful. And, and it, it was really, oh, it's only a short. It's only well, short. thank I, you. I mean, one of the things that, you know, that is heartwarming, I have to say for me personally, is that we started this journey uh, at CinemaCon, I mean, after Sundance, which is in Vegas, and it's, the, it's where the whole industry goes and shows their trailers. It's where you launch the trailers. So all the studios are there, everyone flies out the talent, and everyone goes and you show it to every single cinema owner in the US. And these are people from like Boise, Idaho, and all these sort of places across the States. It's their big rah-rah thing in Vegas. And so we went with everyone else and we introduced the trailer. And then they decided that they were going to screen our film that night uh, to all these people. So I was like, oh my God, that's a 
big task for this film when they've got all these other big studio pictures around. And um, I, um, we said, okay, fine, let's do it. And all these very American guys, a lot of them I'm sure voted for Trump, but they all came out of the movie sobbing. Oh, sobbing, <laughs> crying their eyes out. <laughs> and Safraz had introduced yeah. it, you know. And so he was walking around Vegas for a day and a half with all these, like, yeah. <laughs> American guys coming up and shaking his hand <laughs> and, like, relating to him and going, oh, my God, my dad never said that to me. My dad yeah. this, my dad that. And for one moment, I was like, they're not seeing Safraz as a Pakistani Muslim guy in America. They're seeing him as, you know, the, the guy whose dream came true in this film and shaking hands with him, you know, like, I was like, wow, that is the power of cinema, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I thought you were the boy. Sorry? I thought you were the boy in oh. the story. Oh, you oh no, it's based on Safraz Manzur's story. Yeah. But the little boy at the very front, the young Javid, yeah. that's my son. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so that's nice. Dorinda's <laughs> got to go and join her son who's in America. The film is out August the 9th here. Uh, tell your friends uh, and people and go and see it again. It's out in the US the week after, so we wish you luck. I can't think of a better reason to go to the US. Thank Dorinda you. Charter, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks for joining us. And remember, you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.